Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and everything else. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm the author of Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm the author of Victories Greater Than Death, a brand new young adult space opera novel. In this episode, we'll be talking about gentrification, not just how gentrification changes our cities and changes our lives, but also what kinds of stories we tell about gentrification. How do we justify what we're doing using science fiction and horror, but also how does science fiction and horror kind of protest against the process of gentrification? And helping us wade through all of these difficult topics We have Sam J. Miller, who is the award-winning author of Blackfish City, and his new novel, The Blade Between, is all about gentrification in his hometown of Hudson, New York. Tell me, what is gentrification? So this is a really huge question, and I did kind of a deep dive on it as we were preparing for this episode. And one of the best explanations that I found is from Stacy Sutton, who is a professor in the Department of Urban Planning and Policy at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And she did a TED Talk a few years ago where she just perfectly summed up what gentrification is. And this is what she said. The term gentrification refers to processes by which higher income or higher status people relocate to or invest in low-income urban neighborhoods. These neighborhoods have historically been disinvested by both the public and private sector. And so as higher income people move to these areas, it's typically to capitalize on the low property values. In doing so, they inflate property values, displace low-income people, and fundamentally alter the culture and character of the neighborhood. So the thing that really struck me about her explanation and then what she kind of goes on to say in the rest of this TED Talk, which we'll link to in the notes, is that the main problem is displacement. And the reason why I really liked the fact that she emphasized that is because I think we get caught up in a lot of discussions about gentrification that kind of end up being about aesthetics, like people saying like, well, I don't like seeing Starbucks because it's icky and I'd rather have like artisanal coffee or like, or I hate artisanal coffee because, you know, and that it, it ends up being about how a neighborhood looks or how we feel about different kinds of stores and housing in the neighborhoods. And What Professor Sutton says is, like, that's not the issue. The issue is literally just that displacement forces people who live in a neighborhood to leave, to be displaced. And the other thing that I wanted to throw in there as, like, a sub-definition is something that uh, she talks about, uh, which is called exclusionary displacement. So there's the normal kind of displacement, which is literally rich people move in and poor people have to physically leave. But Mm -hmm. then there's a whole bunch of people in many cities, including San Francisco, where we live, 
uh, and New York and Chicago, which are two cities that have a lot of issues around gentrification, where there are people who are living in rent-controlled houses or they're living in low-income housing in neighborhoods that are gentrifying. So they don't have to leave. They're not going to actually be physically displaced because they're going to continue to be able to afford it. But because of the fact that the entire neighborhood is changing around them, all their friends and family are being displaced, Mm -hmm. all their favorite stores are being displaced, they end up wanting to leave and choosing to leave anyway because the neighborhood is not their neighborhood anymore. So that's called exclusionary displacement, and that's a kind of epiphenomenon. You were telling me about um, another definition that you heard from Jeff Chang, who's a music critic. Jeff Chang, the author of Who We Be, The Colorization of America. I was actually at a bookstore event uh, a few years ago where Jeff was saying that he wants us to stop saying the word gentrification and start kind of using the term resegregation instead because he feels like that's really the phenomenon that's happening. And he made an amazing video, which we're going to link to in the show notes. And here's just a clip from that. The San Francisco Bay Area. It's a place I've called home for half my life now, and some days I feel like I don't even recognize it anymore. Lots of friends have been forced to move. Homelessness is worse than I've ever seen, and making ends meet seems less and less possible for everyday working people. Like the Bay Area, America is resegregating. It's becoming more separate and more unequal. So that was Jeff talking about basically how the Bay Area is changing and how he doesn't recognize his neighborhood anymore and how it doesn't feel like the place that he's been living for so long. And he uses the term resegregation in that clip as well. It is to do with like who the neighborhood is for and who feels comfortable in the neighborhood. And can you afford to buy groceries in the neighborhood where you live anymore? Or is it all like high-end kind of boutique grocery stores where, you know, a tube of toothpaste costs like $25 or something? And it's just, there are a lot of other factors that go into this besides just like, are you able to afford your rent? And, you know, obviously with rent control, some people can, but it's, it's, it's more complicated than that. And one point that I wanted to kind of make really quickly is that I feel like this sometimes gets subsumed into the question of housing shortages. You know, the fact that like a lot of these cities actually have a shortage of housing, but this is not a problem that can be just addressed by building a lot more housing, especially if the housing is all aimed at the professional kind of upper income class, because that will just worsen the the problem of people, longstanding residents, not being able to continue to live in their own neighborhood because it's changed around them. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what Jeff Chang is talking about is exclusionary displacement. You know, the people who stay in the neighborhood feeling like it's just not, it's not their place anymore, um, which is really a heartbreaking feeling. You know, how does gentrification relate to storytelling and, and how can we tell stories that help us to cope with gentrification? So the thing that is interesting about this is obviously we're going to talk about science fiction and fantasy and horror about gentrification. So obvious stories about gentrification, but also in sort of social science writing about gentrification, storytelling comes up a lot. And I found a fantastic article by Rachel Brahinsky, who's a professor, actually someone I used to work with when I worked at the San Francisco Bay Guardian. And then she went on and got fancy Yay. and got a job as a professor and writes about... I love the Bay Guardian. I know. That was a I great... that paper. A great place uh, to start my career. And Rachel was one of the, the really cool people there. So she has an article that came out last year in a journal called Economy and Space, And it's specifically an article about 
the stories that we tell about gentrifying spaces. And so she looks at things like mass media, but also like real estate documents, like how do real estate agents tell stories to make gentrification happen? And one of the things she says is that a metaphor that comes up again and again is that low-income neighborhoods that are being targeted for development are referred to as the frontier. And Uh. and there's all this literature calling for basically white outsiders to come in and be pioneers who will colonize these frontiers, um, which are, of course— Just like the frontier in the United States, they are not unoccupied land. These are places that people live. It's not a frontier. It's actually a city. So this is literally manifest destiny is what you're saying. Yes, they're using the language of manifest destiny to talk about neighborhoods. And I have a really great quote from this article about this housing complex in San Francisco that Charlie Jane and I are kind of obsessed with. And um, Charlie, do you want to read this quote? Sure. The Nima Luxury Housing Complex has claimed the explicit role of, quote, lifestyle pioneer, unquote, in its advertising materials. This sales pitch came in a gush of high-tech and high-rise living that places the nouveau riche high above the city's poorest. The Nima Tower presides over a city block where houseless people struggle to survive as police target them for voter-approved quality of life crimes, which include sitting down on the sidewalk when one is exhausted. Although it is the homeless who brave the elements, they are not also known as, quote, lifestyle pioneers, unquote. And I actually had a friend who lived in that building for a while, and she said it was super weird. Like when she would run into her neighbors in the elevator, it was just always really uncomfortable interactions. Yeah, so this is a building, it is called the NEMA Housing Complex, N-E-M-A. I have no idea what that stands for. It's right across the street from the Twitter building in San Francisco's downtown. And as Rachel says in this piece, it's also an area where a lot of houseless people are on the street, and particularly before the pandemic. And in San Francisco, there is a law against sitting on the street. And you can bet that it's not used against tired hipsters who are just taking a break and drinking their coffee. It's explicitly a it's illegal to be houseless law. Or if you are houseless, you may never sit down anywhere. And so that's exactly what's happening outside this NEMA housing complex. So there's all these white pioneers, these rich Twitter workers and other mm-hmm. uh, high-tech uh, workers crossing the street, literally walking over the bodies of people who are often very, very sick and can't actually move very well. And so this is part, again, of this storytelling, the story cycle about what it means to gentrify. It's not portrayed as come in and kick people out. It's portrayed as like, you're a lifestyle pioneer. You're like, you know, you're doing something brave and exciting. And the best thing that we can do, I think, as storytellers, and we're going to talk more about this, is develop new stories about this process. And I think there's a lot of science fiction writers working on this. But one of the things that Rachel says is that we also have to look at our cities themselves for counter narratives. And she calls attention to street art, And she says that, you know, you see these incredible 
forms of protest going up on walls all over the Bay Area. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a ton of street art around a lot of the camps where people are living, um, people who don't have houses, who are basically forced to gather together in places where they're going to be allowed to pitch their tents. And there's one of these campsites in Oakland where the people who live there have made all this beautiful art about home and what it means to be home. And I think that's just such an interesting way of thinking about storytelling. And it hadn't occurred to me until reading Rachel's work that, in fact, a lot of urban street art is about home and what it means to be home and whose home is it? You know, whose signs get to be on the walls? What language are those signs in? Those are all signals to us about who owns the place and who belongs in the place. It's not even about who owns it. It's who belongs here. So, yeah, I love the idea of combating storytelling with storytelling and trying to sort of solve a narrative disorder by, you know, telling better stories and creating new images. And I love seeing that street art. It always makes me happy when I see, you know, artwork that shows that the city kind of still has a a life and a soul. Uh, But so what are some other ways that we're dealing with this? How are activists and just ordinary citizens stepping up to support the houseless and support longtime residents and kind of fight against gentrification and displacement? Yeah, I think this goes back to something that Stacey Sutton has talked about uh, in her work. And she is very interested in the idea, again, of displacement and how do you prevent displacement. And so she suggests that cities, city governments, state governments even, engage in revitalization projects in neighborhoods that are explicitly aimed at not making them too expensive for the current residents. So it's not the problem is not revitalizing, right? The problem is not making a neighborhood nicer or improving the plumbing or cleaning up the community pool or, you know, building a new school. The problem is is displacement. So if, if there is revitalization happening in a neighborhood, there needs to be some way to prevent that revitalization from pushing the current people who live there out. And it needs to be fair, right? It can't be a situation where you say like, oh, well, we're tearing down a bunch of low-income housing and we're putting in condos and everyone who lived in the low-income housing has an opportunity to bid first on those condos. Like, And that's a trick that a lot of gentrification developers do. And so it has to be affordable too. Yeah, so basically what we're talking about is breaking this false dichotomy, right, between letting a neighborhood just kind of slowly rot versus, like, turning it into an upscale neighborhood. Yeah, you know, it's either the frontier or it's garbage, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's actually, it turns out that it's just a neighborhood that needs revitalization and that needs to support its current residents while also welcoming in new residents. Yeah, and so the, the default assumption is that the people who are living there are not really contributing, are not really part of making it a better neighborhood, and that the only value that you can bring is by importing new residents. Yeah, that's right. Those exciting pioneers and mm-hmm. that the people who are there. I mean, the thing about the Manifest Destiny narrative that you brought up earlier is that that myth is based on the idea that you as a pioneer are entering a virgin land, Right a totally unoccupied space. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what this these kinds of stories suggest, is that when you go and gentrify a part of the city, there's literally no one there who is living there or contributing. Or there, there are people who are just slowly making it worse, but we can counteract their malign influence. So 
obviously we're obsessed with science fiction. What are some ways that science fiction is addressing this like urban crisis? I think this is a big topic in science fiction right now. It's really interesting. So there's obviously N.K. Jemisin's novel, The City We Became, which is the first in a trilogy. Yeah, and we've talked about it, I think, multiple times on this podcast now. And it's about New York City as being gentrified by a cosmic force that is Mm -hmm. kind of a chthonic, evil fungus thing. And then the other thing that's interesting to me is that there is a new reboot of the Candyman franchise, the movie Candyman, which came out back in the 90s, which is also explicitly about uh, gentrification in Chicago. The urban legend is, if you say his name five times while looking in the mirror, he appears in the reflection and kills you. Who would do that? Highly recommend that people check out the original movie, which is super creepy and really beautiful and involves kind of one of the early fantasies of destroying a Karen with Black history. So that's kind of a cool narrative for us right now. What are some ones that you're thinking about? Well, so, you know, we talked before we started about, like, Sorry to Bother You, which is part of, like, there was a wave of movies that came out that summer that were about Oakland specifically and about gentrification and transformation in Oakland. You know, it came out around the same time as Blindspotting, the movie starring Davi Diggs and Raphael Casal that was all about gentrification and displacement in Oakland. And it felt like those films were kind of in dialogue with each other. And obviously, Sorry to Bother You is much more fantastical and much more creepy in its kind of look at, like, this dude tried to join the professional class and kind of move up in a city that's changing around him and what it means to sort of be part of the professional class in a city that's gentrifying. And then isn't there a scene at the end of Black Panther where basically T'Challa has come to Oakland and is mm-hmm. he's building schools, right? He's building a, a school for like STEM or something. Yeah, I think the sort of general implication at the end of, of Black Panther is that he's going to come to Oakland and he's going to kind of help to improve the city, but not by displacing the current residents, but, you know, instead by, like, helping to lift up the people who are living there now. And that this is sort of this hopeful moment of, like, after all this isolationism on the part of the Wakandans, they are now going to start taking a more active role in the world, and they're going to start in Oakland, which is where, obviously, Killmonger, the Michael B. Jordan character, was living before he went off to Wakanda. And also the home of the Black Panther Party. So, you know, it's kind of an origin story or an alternate origin story for Black Panther. Yeah, I love that. And I think that that's kind of a callback to this idea of revitalization without gentrification, right? You know, that you can improve a neighborhood and improve the prospects for the people who live there, but without displacement. And I think that's actually a good segue to talking Mm -hmm. to our guest, Sam J. Miller, who is very interested both personally and as a writer in the process of gentrification. Hey, we have another podcast recommendation for you today. It's called The Kotki Ride Home, hosted by Jackson Bird. In just 15 minutes, The Kotki Ride Home keeps you updated on the coolest stuff that happens in the world each weekday. So weekends, forget it. But on the weekdays, you're set. Kotki.org is one of the longest-running blogs online, and the podcast Kotki Ride Home features the latest scientific discoveries, exciting art, little-known histories, life hacks, and more. 
I remember reading Kotki.org back in Web 1.0. So this is like... Web 0.5. Yeah, exactly. Web 2.5. So this is legit stuff. Recent shows have featured why we high-five, the etymology of the word robot, and how machine learning is helping us figure out what whales are saying to each other. The host of the show is Jackson Bird, who is an author, TED speaker, YouTuber, and pub quiz host who has his finger on the pulse of the most fascinating stories of the day. The Codkeed Ride Home is an antidote to depressing headlines with lots of smart stuff in podcast form. Search your podcast app of choice for Ride Home and subscribe to the Codkey Ride Home. So we have got Sam J. Miller with us. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Really big fan. Yeah, fandom is mutual. So let's start just by talking a little bit about gentrification in kind of genre in general. I'm wondering if you have any hypotheses about why it's become like a big topic lately. Charlie and I have been talking about how N.K. Jemison has a, you know, new series about gentrification. Candyman is being rebooted again. Sorry to bother you blew all of our minds. What's what's going on? Why is there this new moment? Oh, I have so many hypotheses. I mean, I think that one important thing to think about that often is overlooked in terms of thinking about gentrification in horror is it actually has really deep roots. Like we often think of gentrification as this contemporary issue, but the reality is like many of horror's most sort of venerable tropes are really about displacing people of color and the sort of like violence that that is ensued. So you think about like, you know, the problematic like Indian burial ground story or the haunted house where like an Indian massacre happened. You think about The Shining, you think about Pet Cemetery. These are all sort of like problematic Western framings of history where violence that happened in the past is being revisited upon innocent, quote unquote, people Mm -hmm. um, who, Mm -hmm. you know, they just moved into this house. They didn't kill anybody, but they're benefiting from a system that displaced and killed so many people. And so, so I think it's always been there. And I think it's, it's an exciting moment where horror, especially, but genre in general is sort of exploring what's happening in cities around the, around the world when it comes to um, neighborhoods transforming. Why do you think that the Lovecraftian strand of cosmic horror is part of this? Because I feel like there's a lot of chthonic moments happening, both in your work and other people's work. Yeah, I think that, uh, unfortunately, white supremacy is really like an elder god. Like, capitalism is like a shambling Lovecraftian monster of just like, you know, it's a very great metaphor for like a huge, massive, seemingly unstoppable evil that destroys all this stuff. And, you know, I think we're seeing a great moment where a lot of like creators of color and lots of creators are sort of taking the reins of Lovecraft's racism and, and misogyny and horror and horrible approach in general and sort of reinterpreting that to fit a worldview that rightfully sees displacement of people of color as a bad thing and rising rents displacing longtime residents as a problem. So yeah, I think mm-hmm. that shambling cosmic horror monsters are a great way to talk about what's really the problem when we talk about uh, gentrification and late capitalism. 
Yeah, because they're kind of systemic in a way. They're like systemic monsters as opposed to like just the one-off bad apple monster down the street. Exactly. <laughs> so many so many tentacles, so big, so beyond yes. our scope uh, as, yeah. as human humans. Yeah, and part of what I loved about the city we became is how it's sort of like attacking infrastructure. You have like at one point, like one of the big bridges in New York is kind of overcome with this like goopy white nastiness. And it's fungus. just like fungus. Yeah, it feels like there is this kind of like, it's it's infrastructural. It's, yeah. These are monsters that are in the infrastructure. But exactly. it's also like in the blade between, which I want to talk about now, like it's also an infection. Like you use a lot of metaphors of infection. I wonder if you could just talk in general about how gentrification is kind of almost like a character in the blade between. Sure, sure. So I, the, the sort of backstory on the blade between is that the town where I grew up, Hudson in upstate New York, when I was growing up was a really depressed, poor, small town. Um, and in the past couple of decades has really been reinvented as this sort of haven for wealthier New Yorkers and artists who can't afford Brooklyn rents anymore uh, and folks who are sort of like buying up cheap property. And suddenly, you know, rents are skyrocketing, that people I grew up with are being displaced. And I would go home and I would be really angry about it. I've spent 15 years working as a community organizer in New York City. So I'm, I've worked on gentrification for a really long time and sort of looked at what are the laws and policies that need to change to stop displacement. Uh, and that's a really hard fight that is playing out in a lot of places. And so being in Hudson and sort of hating this town so much and getting out of it as soon as I could, because it was so homophobic and there was no opportunity. But So I hated it, but also I loved it. And I felt really a lot of ownership of it and, and pride in it and complicated feelings about watching it transform. And so while I had always sort of thought of gentrification as like not my story to tell, as something that's like predominantly impacts working class communities of color, th- what was happening in my hometown was like something that I could, I sort of stood on both sides of. Like I'm a queer artist. So when I come home, um, I, uh, I'm going to all the queer cultural event stuff that the locals often view with a lot of suspicion. Um, yeah, I think that the idea of a infection of evil, or at least a super, I mean, honestly, the supernatural in the blade between is what I think of as like the good guys, right? It's it's sort of like the ghosts that are keeping that t- the town together. It's like, what would happen if gentrification came to the town with a secret, right? The Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, The Wicker Man, like, would the local, the new arrivals be exempt from the lottery? Would they have to enter twice? Like, th- this is my attempt to sort of, like, interrogate that, oh. that, that, that trope of, like, you know, the supernatural that protects this place, is it vulnerable? What could destroy it? And how would it respond to attempts to destroy it? I love that so much. Yeah, it's kind of, it's it has the Crimson Peak feeling of like, you know, it's a haunted place, but it turns out that the haunting is actually not the problem. Like, totally. <laughs> the problem is the people who live there. Totally, <laughs> totally. And one of my yeah. one of my favorite recent uh, horror movies is The Babadook. And um, I think that yeah. what, what, what blew my mind about that was like, usually we think of like monsters as things to be destroyed, right? This horror that must be exercised. And what is amazing about that is, like there's no getting rid of trauma there's no erasing grief right you have to make your peace with it and so this idea that monsters the solution isn't to destroy the monster it's to like form like compromise with it like that that's sort of like spoiler alert for the ending of the blade between it's like it's not about can we destroy this foe it's like how what is the future where the new arrivals and the longtime residents can build a city that they're all proud of and where there's space for everyone 
Yeah, I we were talking uh, in the first half of the episode about how activists who are working on gentrification are, are trying to figure that out. Like, how do you revitalize a neighborhood, but then not price out the, the residents? And I, I love that idea of the longtime residents or the history of the area being represented as something supernatural that you kind of have to live with. So I feel like in The Blade Between, but also in some of your other work too, that there's this kind of, there's a dimension of personal trauma that's connected to this really big political and economic trauma. I wonder if you could talk about that. Like, why is gentrification personal as well as political and economic? Like, yeah, kind of small, but also huge. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that one of the things like what, you know, I worked for this organization called Picture the Homeless, with, which was founded and is led by homeless folks. And I got to work alongside so many amazing folks who had been displaced, right, who couldn't afford New York City rents uh, for, for a number of reasons. And I think that often we don't think of you know, gentrification is talked about in such abstract terms. And especially for folks who are sort of like, I don't want to say the perpetrators of gentrification, but the people who are moving in, who are who are of a new demographic, who are wealthier, um, who are who are driving rents up, don't get it. I don't see the trauma. They don't know who used to live in their apartment or what happened to get them out of the apartment, right? right. And so trying to tell those stories of like, you know, actually be having your family be displaced in the middle of the winter when you have kids in school and suddenly you have to go into a, sh- like that is a violent, that is a form of violence that is completely legal and state sanctioned and unspeakably traumatic that if you haven't experienced it, many people don't know that that's a thing that happens to thousands of people every day. So those are the stories that I want to tell because I want people to get that it's not just like, oh, the rents are going up. Oh, people have to move. Yeah. One of the things that gets tangled up with gentrification is this idea that, you know, oh, we hate the new kinds of stores that are coming in. And it seems like that's not really the point. The point isn't an aesthetic one. Yeah, the aesthetics are easy to focus on. There's a lot of resentment of the hip and the new, um, but it's really, these are all sort of like smoke screens for the real issue, which is that somebody's profiting from rents rising and people being pushed out. And and that's the horror. That's the real horror that I think a lot of creators are finding ways to tell stories of, which is super exciting. I mean, I love N.K. Jemison's The City We Became. You know, Candyman is like possibly my favorite horror movie of all time. It certainly, oh certainly the scariest. Um, and I think that we need to watch that. Oh my lord! Yeah, I'm here no, for I, it. I, I'm always yeah. here to see that. So the idea of that being told through the lens of gentrification. I went to Chicago to work with some community organizers out there who are amazing. And I and some of them had were folks who had lived in Cabrini Green. And I went to the site of, you know, like the demolished, like the fields where those towers used to stand and talked to people who have been displaced from those towers. And it was with a promise of one-to-one replacement. Like everyone who lost a home would get a home. And of course, none of them, like very few of them did. And the ones who did ended up in like a buildings with like, surrounded by really rich racists who were terrible neighbors to them. So yeah, the idea of like Candyman being revisited through the lens of how, like what the oppression of working class African-American communities looks like in uh, 2021 versus 1993 is I'm so excited about. Yeah. Are there any other stories that you feel like you're kind of picking up on in your work or that you're kind of arguing against in your work? Um, I think there's definitely a big piece of the 
interrogation of the problematic narratives that I mentioned of like the legacy of colonial violence and manifest destiny as sort of like not a separate thing from gentrification, right? It is the same thing. It is, this should be ours. We shall take it. And mm-hmm. um, so, so I do, I do love interrogating those. One of my favorite young adult writers is Lillian Rivera and her work deals with gentrification a lot. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot of really cool stuff happening that is exciting. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about, you know, ways that you've engaged in, you know, direct action to help people um, who are dealing with gentrification. How do you see stories playing a role in changing how we deal with our cities, how we deal with revitalization, all these questions? I really feel like storytelling is super is a super important piece of activism and organizing. Having spent many, many years doing the sort of like stuffing envelopes, making phone calls, get meeting with elected officials mm-hmm. who are full of shit, you know, going out to do outreach to people to, who are being directly impacted, to come to meetings, to plan protests, all that stuff. Like, I think that all of that is a factor of social change, but that politicians only make the change the majority of their constituents are comfortable with, right? They're not going to do something because it's the right thing, right? If they're getting money from real estate developers, as most electives are in most American cities, they're going to be very hesitant to do anything that's going to tamper with the power of real estate to make money. So the only thing that will make them do the right thing isn't that it's the right thing. It's that a lot of people are telling them to, and a lot of people get it. And the more we can tell the story of gentrification as it really is, and displacement, and, and the idea that you know, people have power, people can do something about it. Like if storytelling can change the narrative and get people to really understand the problem, then I think we can really start to see social activism successfully push politicians and other decision makers to do the right thing. Uh, Because right now, you know, most people who are sort of like newcomers to a neighborhood who are who are wealthier than the historical residents, often they don't want to think about it. They don't get it. They want to see it in terms of like us versus them, or they're mad at me about something I didn't do, or any number of narratives that aren't like we have a shared interest. Like I'm paying too much money in rent. The person who was here before couldn't, uh, and that's why they're gone. But if we come together and like everyone realizes that it's not about like, you know, homeless people as the wretched of the earth, but rather as tenants who couldn't afford to pay rent anymore and we have common interests and we need to come together and fight for change, that's when we can start to see things happen. So like I keep telling myself that that's the power of storytelling and that's why it's worth doing um, with, with time that one could otherwise be spent like, you know, annoying electeds and tweeting at jerks and, you know, going to meetings and going to protests and all that other stuff. Here in San Francisco, a big factor in kind of keeping affordable housing out is these sort of neighborhood associations and these kind of people who view like preserving the character of the neighborhood or keeping the neighborhood safe and and whatever. Like there's all these coded terms that people use. How do you unpack the stories that are being used by these like NIMBY groups and how do you counteract that? What kind of storytelling do you use to counteract that? One of the things that I love so much about the city we became is how much space is given to the opposing viewpoint, which is something that I have a hard time with of like, I don't want to give space to the jerks, to the people who are advancing the things that I hold reprehensible. But that book sort of invokes those to deconstruct them. Like I've been to those meetings, like I've been to meetings with neighborhood associations who were trying to block a shelter, for example, because they worried about crime. And I think that it's important to go to those meetings and tell those people the truth, but also like they are not going to change their minds. 
Like they're not who I want to spend my time talking to. I want to spend time, my time talking to everybody else who hasn't decided that their self-interest it depends upon other people not getting housing, right? So yeah, I think it's, I think as with social activism in general, like if I'm trying to like fight against climate change, I'm not going to spend my time talking to the people who think that climate change isn't real. Um, I'm going to spend my time talking to the people who aren't sure what to think about climate change or think like have narratives in their head, but haven't made up their mind already. So in general, I think it's important to know what those folks are doing and, and to understand their arguments so as to deconstruct them, but also like they're not my audience. They're competing with us for control of the narrative. And so the more we can deconstruct their narrative, the, the better. What's like the ultimate anti-manifest destiny story or trope? If we were to have like the two pills, like there's the manifest destiny pill and then that the other pill that you can take, what's, what is the story at the core of that other pill? Sorry to use the pill metaphor, but I was just- It is the tool that we have, it's right? It's the narrative it's, it's, Yes, we have. exactly. <laughs> um, like this is, this is going to sound really weird, but one of my favorite anti-gentrification narratives is the Goonies. Right. Um, because it's about oh. it's about, you know, the, 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 the evil developers want to destroy the neighborhood and create something for them. Right. And they don't care who gets hurt in the process. But because the people who are directly impacted by the problem come together and fight back, they win. Right. So the, the, the counter narrative to Manifest Destiny is people have the power. The people who think of themselves as like, you know, the disempowered, they're directly impacted, the marginalized, whatever, can come together and really change the game. You know, I'm not going to say that The Goonies is the perfect anti-gentrification movie, but that's a narrative <laughs> that a lot of people can get that like, you know, if you are trying to fight a problem by yourself, you know, at the beginning, everyone's like resigned themselves to the imminent destruction of everything they love. And by the end, they're like, oh, no, like we we got this, like all us oddballs can come together and do some some cool shit and and chain and, and win. I love that. Um, That's amazing. It's just like Boots Riley says. You know, he says they've got helicopters, but we've got hella people. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I love that. We got hella people. They got helicopters. They got the bombs, and we got the. So Sam, where can people find you online or in bookstores? I, I, I am in all the places. Uh, my website is samjmiller.com. I'm on Twitter at SentenceBender. I'm on Instagram at sam.j.miller. And my new novel, The Blade Between, is uh, available from fine, upstanding indie bookstores and evil corporate behemoths everywhere. You should go with the former, not the latter. Um, uh, <laughs> and it's out there. Awesome. It's such a good Yay. book, too. I highly recommend it. Um, it's just such a, it really grabbed me. It was just so, it, it's exciting. It's like, it's like the Goonies, but you know, a little bit more scary. A little bit queerer, <laughs> a little bit sexier. I'm not gonna, Definitely I'm not gonna try more to... queer than the Goonies. I mean, who knows what was going on in the Goonies? I mean, Josh like, Brolin. Like, what they grew up to yeah, be. Yeah, Josh Brolin is fine as hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I love the idea of the Goonies as like, a queer kid story. Like they all grew up to be gay. Totally. I'm sure. Totally. Yeah. Yay. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. Thank you. I love you all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Our Opinions Are Correct. We love you. If you would like to support the pod, you can become a patron on Patreon. We're on Patreon as Our Opinions Are Correct. You can also 
Follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. And of course, you already know that this podcast can be found everywhere where delicious podcasts are served up with side of fries or a side of broccoli. Nom, 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 um, nom, 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 nom. It really helps if you leave a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find it. And if you would like to become a, I don't know, space-going collective organism, we really recommend that you subscribe and that you become a patron. Thank you to our amazing producer, Veronica Simonetti, and thank you to Chris Palmer for the music. And we will be back in your ears in a week. Bye!